and this is the Influence Watch podcast. My colleague Ken Braun, who joins me today, has written extensively on the sheer scale of the environmentalist organizations opposed to emissions-free nuclear energy, which claim at least $2.3 billion in annual revenue. But what does their anti-nuclear activity look like in practice? Joining us today to discuss that is Hugo Kruger, a nuclear engineer from South Africa working in France, who is also a public advocate for the technology. Uh, Hugo, thank you for joining us. Uh, before I begin, can you tell us a little bit about your background, what you do in the nuclear industry, and how you got into advocacy? Yeah, sure. Thanks a lot, Mike. Um, so my background, I actually started in the cement industry, um, cement and concrete, where I worked with fly ash. Um, fly ash is a byproduct of coal. So I, I started in the coal industry uh, in South <laughs> Africa, which is dirty as you, the, the heresy already. I uh, worked there for two years. It was a French company. Then they asked who wants to speak French. And I said, why would, why not? And then uh, our lecture said there was a scholarship for people to study um, in France. So I, my bachelor's was in civil engineering, actually. And then I did my master's in nuclear civil engineering. I came to France. I then worked on Hinkley Point C on the design. The, the design office was in Paris. And then I worked at ITER, the International Thermonuclear Act in the south of France. And um, after that, I actually worked in the oil and gas industry for the last uh, so much four years now. And um, I'm soon to go back to the nuclear, though I'm negotiating a salary. So I don't know if that's going to work out to try and uh, take what I learned in the oil and gas industry and apply it into the nuclear industry. And I've actually worked in offshore. So, 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 you've, been, so you've been all over the energy. Yeah, industry. and I've actually worked in offshore wind as well. So I always have to say that. That is sort of like saying my base, some of my best friends are environmentalists. Um, <laughs> and um, why I'm an advocate for the nuclear industry is I, I just got very skeptical of the, the stuff that I've been told about renewables, and especially when I talk to the engineers. And I get very worried when the politicians go and make public statements that seem to just deviate from what engineers know we can produce. And we're sitting there, we're like, okay, we're not going to build that fast. We're not going to mine that fast. It's just not possible. Does it stop you from doing so? And uh, that's sort of why I said, well, nuclear needs a little bit of a voice. I'm not a over-nuclear person. I actually still believe South Africa needs to go to coal because it's just what we've got sometimes. And I'm actually in favor of natural gas, but I think it's part of the energy mix. And I think a country that's sensible will have it as part of its long-term energy strategy. Cool. Uh, so can you give us, again, based on your knowledge, just from, I guess, the broader energy industry at the sort of 30,000 foot, 10,000 meter level, where where are the various countries in, like, who's doing well uh, with both nuclear and, I guess, the broader all of the above uh, sort of energy mix, uh, and, and who's doing badly and kind of, obviously, because we're from the U.S., where's the U.S. sit in your opinion? Well, um, it depends on the energy source. Some countries are better at some things than others. So France is very big in nuclear. They've got 58 nuclear plants. Uh, they had the highly successful Mesmer plan in the 1970s, uh, which was sort of a mass socialist government expansion of nuclear just to settle the environmental debate. It was actually to avoid the oil shock of the 73, because after 73, the U.S.'s interest rates went off, went high, and the French realized that your nuclear industry was going to be affected. So they, they actually drew, up, drew over some of the U.S. skills at the time. So you see a lot of geopolitics in, uh, in energy of this nature, where one country is trying to sort of dunk the other country. Um, 
so you know French did that successfully for the US I would say at the time but they overbuilt their nuclear as well so the Mesa plant was the 90s built plants that were was going to be sunk in cots and then the European integrated grid actually saved them so now they're supplying based out to the rest of Europe but they actually would have run those plants at a loss had it not been for the savior of the interconnectors for example so you know European integration is another part of the geopolitics so 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 what France so France in the 70s just to summarize this as much for my own knowledge as anything else 70s oil shock france realizes its energy mix is going to be really problematic france decides okay our state energy company is going to build a bunch of nuclear plants they build so many that they have too many and then it's only when the european electric grid gets all hooked together that they're basically now exporting nuclear energy. Yes. Do I have that more or less right? Yes, and, and had it not been for the politicians trying to fiddle with the price of electricity, electricity to France would be running at a profit now. And now the environmentalists... <laughs> of, of, but there's other issues in France as well, for example. So it's, it's not that clear, uh, clear picture. So when Francois Hollande became president, he tried to win the marginal vote by appeasing Greenpeace. And then he's committed to phasing out nuclear to 40%. That made electricity to France fire the nuclear engineers, the civil engineers. And when they had rebuilt Flamonville and, and, and Inkley Point and the, the uh, Finland power station, they had no engineers left. They started at the top of the S-curve again, which is what I think the US has been doing with nuclear. You just don't get an economies of scale going. And how do you say, well... How do you create a cost of a former product that is cost competitive if you don't get economies of scale? Um, the interesting one on nuclear is the developing world, how we are doing it. Um, I include now South Africa. Yes, South Africa bought the plant from the French in the 1980s. It's interesting to note that Turkey is now buying plants. They bought one from Russia. They're going to buy another one from China. Egypt is buying two as well. And Uganda uh, went from 300 megawatt total capacity in the country. They're now going to add 15 gigawatts, so 15,000 megawatts. That's a vanity project. But they're adding two nuclear plants. So there's, there's good and bad investments in nuclear. But the advantage of the developing world has always been we have a vendor financing system. So we say to the U.S. or we say to Russia, we say to China, you guys bring the financing and we pay you back in tariffs afterwards. And if there's overruns, you carry the construction risk. So South Africa's, or South Africa's balance sheet, for example, Eskimo Utility, nuclear is the most affordable electricity in the country. We bought it when France was at mass production. So you need to look at deals when countries are buying, when they are doing it, when you're trying to assess the, that's just a nuclear market. I and mean, I can extract these, extrapolate these lessons to oil and gas as well. I mean, Mozambique is now trying to extrapolate uh, oil and gas in the north of Cabo Delgado. So it's a highly impoverished area. But there's a civil war that was triggering because they forgot to take into account the, the tribal differences. So that's a bad investment from a natural gas perspective. Countries that import natural gas do better than countries that are trying to extract themselves because there's lots of competition in the market. So you really need to understand each, each market separately before you're going to um, you know, just jump into it, basically. Uh, Ken, do you have any questions for our guest? Well, yeah, I, I guess on the, on, on the last point. Um, so my... North North Korea, South Korea does a, seems to be uh, nuclear energy plants are exceedingly expensive in the United States for all the reasons you just discussed. We just got out of the business and left it alone and never got an economy of scale going. Um, based on countries that do it right, 
how much how much less should we be paying per plant if we mm-hmm. could just somehow export all of the engineers and all the technology you know if we if we decided we were going to be a developing country for the purposes of nuclear energy which we probably should think of ourselves that way right now um how 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 much less could we get plants for than what we're currently building them for what's your estimate or just a percentage yeah, so I've, I've got the actual numbers because i calculated the other day so volkville was oh. was going at thirteen thousand. that's that's the georgia power plant just to clarify yeah, yeah. It, it was it was it was going at thirteen thousand dollars per kilowatt of electricity um these russians and the south koreans are in the export market selling at three thousand so wow. Okay, so they, they, they so see that's a quarter. 70, 75 percent less, right? Am I wow. doing the math right? Yeah, it's about there. So it's 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 that's how much you, that's what the US built at historically. So if you take before the wow. seventy three world crisis, the US was hitting three thousand two to three thousand dollars per kilowatt of electricity. So um, there's no reason why you can't get there again. You need three plants to get to mass production. But now you say, okay, the first one is maybe ten thousand. If they don't change the design and add an aircraft crash in halfway through the project, like it did at, at Bakadil. Um, the second one will be at 6,000. The third one will be at 3,000. So you have 10 plus 6 hmm. is 16 plus 3 is 19. So that's what your budget is going to be before you get to mass production. A better strategy for America, in my view, would be this. Just buy from the South Koreans and let them build it for you. Okay, <laughs> that's but, uh, what I was getting at, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we need to think of ourselves as a developing nation when it comes to <laughs> nuclear energy again. <laughs> um, so uh, you sent me a, a couple of things about getting back to the NGOs and the meddling against the industry. Um, you sent me something, uh, I guess, last week, maybe over the weekend, um, regarding your energy minister in South Africa, um, who was – apparently you have an NGO that's opposing oil and gas exploration off the coast, I think it was, and your energy minister is uh, asserting that there was some American meddling causing that NGO to do that. What, what's, the, what's the story there? Yeah, so it's – I'm always skeptical of these claims because I don't trust any politician to, to tell me the full truth. Um, sure. But- Basically, there's oil now. It's actually discovered in Namibia, but Namibia obviously shares a border of South Africa. And we would like to get into the dinosaur juice business a little bit because we don't have oil, <laughs> historically speaking. <laughs> and now there's NGOs opposing it, taking the government to court, saying they haven't done seismic uh, stuff to protect the whales or something, some impact assessment. And the Department of Energy has approved it years ago. And it seems some of the money, according to the minister, flows from the Rockefeller Foundation and the Ford Foundations. Ah. And historically speaking, they were tied to the CIA and the National Endowment for Democracy. Now... Is the direct link to the CIA and blocking South Africa from exploiting oil? I, I somehow doubt it, to be honest. I just I, 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 I would I would doubt it simply because the Rockefeller Foundation is one of the most aggressively anti-fossil fuel everywhere. Yeah. They're against our extracting our own fossil fuels. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't know about I, I, I don't know. Ken would know where they stand on nuclear. But they're, they're, they're against yeah. they're 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 big. Keep it in the ground types. And, and have funded a lot of anti-nuclear groups as well. Um, and yes, historically, they, they, had, they were funneling money for the CIA, I believe, one, along with the Ford Foundation. I think the two of them were the top two back in the 50s and 60s to meddle in elections in Europe and, you know, doing stuff the CIA is famous for. But I don't believe – I think the CIA is more direct in their approach no, I, I, these days. I don't, don't think – my view is I don't think South Africa is on the political radar of any country. Sure. Um, we have an energy deficit. Uh, I don't think they care if we burn coal tomorrow. Our, our problems right. are internal. 
and this is an excuse. Look, it's election year next year, so it's like sure. everything is is now just going to be statements. It's easy to accuse America or Russia, yeah, whoever you want for this. Um, I would say this: I, I do question where the money is coming from and why the money is going in that direction. Um, well, that's 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 a question we have as well. I mean, the, 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 for our purposes, that the Rockefeller Foundation is meddling uh, internationally like that is is interesting. Um, uh, that they are causing the same trouble elsewhere that they do here. Yeah, and and they, the, the I mean, the money comes from a billionaire long since dead who doesn't know that's what it's being used for, which is a problem we have with a lot of uh, we have a lot and, of and, 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 and in the case and in the case of the Rockefeller Foundation. Billionaire long since dead who made his money on dinosaur juice. Yes. Right. Yeah. And, that's, and, that's and the, the thing I think with these foundations is even if there is sometimes a link to the National Endowment for Democracy, but my understanding is that budget is too big to know where the money is going. I, I don't think there's any oversight of these foundations. They just, I mean, they basically have endless, endless pockets. And take into account the South African rand, for one dollar you get 20 rand, right? So the average salary for engineers in South Africa is, say, 20,000 uh, rand, which is, what, $1,000 a month. That's a decent salary. It's not a top salary, but it's okay salary to survive on. Now, if you throw a billion dollars or a million dollars even into South Africa, you can buy a few politicians. And this is the problem that you have with these foundations is that they lobby for policy. It's not just a, a nuclear and energy policy. It's also our gut because we also have a similar gun culture to the U.S., and basically, our the, the gun law, anti-gun law that the government's proposing was written by an anti-gun lobby that cut money from Europe, wow. for example. So you have NGOs just, I mean, we're just basically saying South Africa is an auction for an NGO at this stage. <laughs> and this is, this is this is sort of the stuff that's happening. So see, see the all energy stuff in a wider context that uh, national health as well. They want national health insurance. We can't afford it. It's just impossible. I had no, I had no idea your uh, your firearms policies were similar to the United States. That's interesting. Um, and also, uh, do I understand right? You um, you have enough coal reserves that you and rely so much on them in South Africa. You 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 basically make gasoline out of them, coal gasification plants. Yes, is that right? Yeah, we, yeah. we have a company called Cecil. Um, it's also a little bit subsidized by the government. So it's always, there's always been a question of how efficient it is. It isn't just cheaper to import, but it's national security. You know, these arguments go, but we have enough coal basically to make our own fuel, our own gasoline, uh, petrol, we say petrol, um, you know, for, for the cars, they actually compete against BP and Shell and they do reasonably well. And then you have this weird thing where the government pension money is invested in it. So obviously they're going to get favorable policies. So there's, there's a little bit of that into the political economy, but yeah, we, we have enough coal reserves for a very long time. And just to add to this this point, our um, coal power stations, some of them are air-cooled, so they run at lower efficiencies, but we've just got so much coal that you can actually justify the economies of that. And South hmm. Africa, if you look per person, we're using more coal than China, we're the highest in the world. So to suggest wow. that we, and then our government, and this is NGO policy again, goes to Paris, makes commitments to reduce our own CO2 by 60-70% without knowing we're burning coal. <laughs> and it was literally how this happened. The Department of Environmental Affairs and Energy didn't talk to each other. And now we've got NGOs, in full, NGOs insisting that we enforce laws that we ourselves signed. So it's not even that they, you know, lobbying for laws. It's just we did it to ourselves. It's so stupid. And, and I would presume South Africa's commitment to global CO2 output is probably in the fractions of a percentage. Uh, yeah, it's one like percent. Hundreds of a percent. But if you yeah. count now historical emissions, it's quite high because we just, uh, but it was limited to the white only population. So now you can add this uh, racial element that goes uh, into it as well. 
Um, and, and, you know, so the, the whole thing is nuts. Anyway, so if they argue from historical percentage of per person, we're quite high because we use so much coal. So they say, yeah, but per person we're high, therefore the policy. It's, it's just, I mean, you can pick any statistic on this environmental stuff and spin it the way you want to, right? So South Africa has no nuclear um, facilities right now. That's what you would like to change one no, day. No, we do. Um, hearing. We do. Oh, you do. I'm sorry. Yeah, so we, we have one uh, power plant in at Cape Town, Kuburg. It's a two gigawatt power station. It was built by the French in the 1980s. We actually had a fusion. How much? How much is? How, excuse me. How much is two gigawatts? Two thousand. Like, like, I mean, I not like how many houses? So I, it's it's forty percent of the Cape Province, which we have nine provinces. So it's forty percent of okay. one province in Cape. So so like half of it. So so enough to power half a state equivalent. Yes, it's it's half a state. So Cape Town has been a carbon-free city since the 1980s. Um, although Cape Town is the most pro-environmentalist group. They don't know and anti-nuclear, surprisingly. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's enough to cover Cape Town plus the surrounding towns in there. There's not mm. much in the rest of the, the, rest of the province. Um, but yeah, so we have one. We have two sites that were um, that have been cited. Environmental assessments been approved years ago. And then the previous government of Jacob Zuma actually put it out on tender. He didn't even put a tender out. He wanted the RFI, request for information. And then the environmental group took the government to court and they said this thing was costing a trillion rand. And when I did the calculation, they basically doubled the price. And there was no deal. There's no evidence of the deal. And they lied to it. And it was propaganda. And this guy, these guys got that award in San Francisco that, that Ken told me about. Is, yeah, that, that's the, uh, the World Resources Institute that gave the award to the two uh, demonstrators in... Is this, is this that yeah, story that, where that, they that, gave that, the award to the demonstrators for blocking the alleged Russian nuclear deal with South Africa? Yes, and, and, and until today, yeah. and I've, I've asked the legal regulator, I've asked even the journalist who wrote the article, and we've asked um, the court, I went through the court documents, I, I just can't see any real evidence, it's assertions, you know, hmm. of, of a deal. So it, and then they get this award, it's, and it's two ladies that nobody's heard about, and they've got these weird-sounding names that nobody can pronounce as well. So it's a very weird story. So it sounds like... Total propaganda on the part of what is, I believe, the second largest best funded anti-nuclear NGO on my list. Um, and so you're, you're, from what I've understood from what you, we've discussed this a little bit, um, your, your assertion is that the French were the ones most likely to get that deal, or at least were strong competitors for it, not necessarily the not Ross Adam or whoever the Russian look, operation look, um, was. South Africa signs cooperative agreements on nuclear. We've got one with the U.S. as well. So even Westinghouse mm-hmm. was approached for this, as I believe. I don't think Westinghouse would have bought oh, okay. it just based on costs, unless you could give us a cheap AP-1000. Then your tax base is paying for the rest. Okay, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> But the, everyone was going to get it. So we did sign a cooperative agreement with Russia, but they don't, never say we also signed with the U.S. and France and South Korea and etc. right? So well, what is the issue about? And it's it's IEA stuff. So that is what they cite as the deal. There's no evidence of that. So, yeah, it, it, may, it almost, I mean, I'm going to go out on my own limb here. It sounds like the world reason, I mean, saying that they blocked a deal with South Africa doesn't uh, sound like much of a reason to give out an environmental hero award, but, or say, excuse me, saying that they blocked a nuclear deal with South Korea or France is not really exciting uh reason but if you say we blocked the the russians then then you then you got then you've got a headline yeah so uh yeah it looks like looks like propaganda there um so moving to um i'm gonna presume you know some something about the politics of this in france a bit um working there um if you don't just let me know um the uh what what why why what is the left in the you know 
the anti-nuclear movement look like in France compared to, I mean, in the United States, just about every left-leaning NGO in our we have is opposed to it. Is that the case in France or not? No, in France, it's a bit more nuanced. Um, there is an anti-nuclear movement here. The French military intelligence have now, being, now accused them of being funded by German intel. Um, but, you know, I don't mm. trust intelligence reports. You know, especially when the French publish it in English. Okay, so <laughs> but I think that's to influence public opinion as well. So, so something is something is for public consumption. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's one of those weapons of mass destruction stories. And accusing the Germans of funding it. Um, but you know, be that as it may, there is an anti-nuclear movement here that has been opposing this Niger. I don't know if you've heard of the Niger coup d'état that recently occurred. Now, France historically got a lot of its uranium from Niger, but it's had three uranium mines. The French have been subsidizing. The French Senate wanted to close it down years ago. And they would just the French said, well, let's keep it because, you know, Niger's got 70% illiteracy, it creates employment in the country. And now this was interpreted as colonial exploitation. Now, there were anti-nuclear people there that's associated with Greenpeace again, a big surprise to, won't be surprised to us, that has been saying it's colonial expression and they were spreading narratives there. And when this coup occurred, the Nigerian guy said, well, I'm going to charge you $200 a kilogram of uranium. And France has said, well, we've got five to six years of stockpile. We're just going to buy it from the Australians or the Canadians on the market. So, you know, and... Now we can get rid of the subsidized mines. So that, there's some of that. Um, but by and large, the wider French society supports nuclear. And yeah, I give credit to, to General de Gaulle. Um, he learned actually from the US military how to put, where to put your military bases, or, or your, 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 not your bases, your, um, your factories, which is you always put them in marginal constituencies. Okay, so <laughs> you put them all over France. Uh, some of these plants, if you look at the way they planted them. It, 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 is, it should not surprise anyone that our tank factory is in Ohio, which until very recently was the marginal state. Oh, exactly. So if you look at where the French nuclear plants are located, and I suspect this is why they might not all be economical sometimes, it's, it's, it's in areas like that. So the goal realized that and when this anti-nuclear movement started mobilizing against it, um, what happened is the French, and I suspect military intelligence did it, but anyways, the, the French unions rose up, that's what they said, and went for to protect the nuclear plants. And Macron was elected as anti-nuclear and pro-Thatcher, which translated to them, we're going to privatize the nuclear fleet. And what happened is the, the French have a very good way of dealing with their politicians. They changed the advisors of Macron. So they changed everyone around him. And keep him the same. And now he's been forced to recommit to nuclear. They're going to build six new nuclear power stations. So that, that, that's yeah. how they did it. And that's, I suspect uh, the, the goal actually learned that from the U.S. where you put your factories. Um, so two questions. Um, number one, you were speaking of possibly Niger squeezing you for fuel and not needing to like purchase any in the near future. Um, hypothetically, I know, first of all, from what I understand, the French reprocess the fuel. Um, if we, if, you know, the United States has an enormous problem with what we're going to do with the fuel because we fight about where we're going to do and, it. And, and actually, and yeah, we can, won't can, reprocess it. Yeah. Yeah. What, what is reprocessing? Just for those who might not know. Reprocessing, and Hugo is much smarter on this than I, but reprocessing is taking the spent fuel taking lots of spent fuel rods, combining them and creating new fuel rods that are stronger out of them. Because I believe they, once they get to like 90% of their effectiveness, you got to pull them out. So you take a whole yeah. bunch of spent ones and make new ones that are back to 100%. So, so, so the back way the to, to put it is just say that the safest place to put plutonium is in a reactor. So you just 
So you take your old fuel, you put it back in the nuclear reactor to make new fuel. You mix, you mix it with low and then you use it as you fuel. mix basically higher enriched fuel with low enriched fuel, basically. So you get a bit of... So France, as a result of doing reprocessing, which the United States won't do, or at least won't, hasn't yet... Um, you really don't have a, a waste problem. Is that un, is that reasonable to to, to well, say? I, I don't think there's a waste problem to begin with. Um, you know, right, I don't okay. think not, well, not even same, the US. Same point. But yeah, basically, you can reduce the amount of waste, but you still end up with higher end waste that you that you need to store in a hole for a few million years or something. Okay, so you just put it down. A, right. We have a deep depository now. They're going to build it CGO in France. I even think that's overblown because the, the, the thing about waste is just. It runs at a negative interest rate, in my view, because it decays, right? So the longer you wait, it's one of the few problems in the world that makes sense to kick the can down the road. Um, mm-hmm. So, so <laughs> my, my view is just put it in a hole in the ground, okay? But it doesn't sound attractive to the environmentalists. In terms of uh, uh, reprocessing fuel, yeah, okay, the French reactors burn. I mean, I mean, we we were we were going to put ours in a mountain, but uh, Harry Reid, who is the senator for the state that the mountain was in, uh, who was a very powerful senator, uh, was was opposed to it, so we still don't put it in the mouth. But, but you see, there, there's a reason set aside. That there's, there's been environmental lobbyists blocking it. And there's one reason why. They always get funds from the fossil fuel industry. If you t- accept that waste runs at a negative interest rate, which is what my argument is, you would say, okay, let's assume Yucca Mountain gets built and Yucca Mountain gets paid by all the other states to store it. Okay, It becomes the trash can of America, if you want. <laughs> What's going to happen? Well, that you put that money in the bank, it runs at a positive interest, the waste runs at a negative interest, and your state becomes stinking rich overnight. Okay, it pays for itself. So it's, it's the most... <laughs> South Africa has a waste repository, luckily. The apartheid government's military built it years ago. We don't know who paid for it. It was one of those dodgy military accounts. But uh, we have one, and we basically... Uh, our waste repository is enough for another 7,000 7, reactors. Okay. Well, South Africa does got one. Okay, so we're fine. <laughs> so, it, it, I mean, it sounds like uh, just okay, hypothetically, uh, we could, we could fix our waste problem by uh, shipping our spent fuel to uh, yes. to France and let you guys uh, let let you guys well, do what you if, do. If with you put that. it in the Sahara Desert, was that, you could put it in South Africa. It's in the Karoo Desert. It's uh, the water table is one kilometer. Was at uh, three thousand yards below. Uh, um, Mm-hmm. ground there's no corrosion where's it this is the ideal place to put it and if you pay us for it we, you can actually help settle our government's current account because our finances don't look very well <laughs> at the moment <laughs> so yeah i i think um i've read no u.s department of energy says this that all of our spent nuclear fuel for the last 60 some odd years would fit on a football soccer field whichever yeah. you wish to go with um at a height of 10 meters all of it. Yeah, so all France's, I believe, highly enriched fuel, the high-level waste, is something like two Olympic swimming pools until now. It's just nothing, yeah, okay. right? And that's you don't Comparable need. Side, and yeah. You can actually still extract the heat from that waste. So there's still applications. There's still medical isotopes to be made. But you know, this is sort of my argument against recycling in general is that it's just a non-issue to me. I, I, I don't see the need to recycle and to have a circular economy all the time. It's a matter of cost. And if it's, you know, we have mine tailings, this is a joke about this whole thing to me. South Africa, when you mine gold, because 25% of all the gold in the world comes from South Africa or came from South Africa, um, you mine uranium with it. And we put uranium in mine tailings in an area called Carlton Gold that's around Johannesburg. And children have been playing it. I grew up close to radioactive <laughs> mine tailings. And if linear no threshold was true, all of Johannesburg, which is a quarter of South Africa's population, would be green at the moment. 
Okay, so like, there is no, I, I just don't see the issue about waste or, you know, radioactive mining or tailings. It's just a boogeyman. Uh, the, I, I, if the U.S. is going to treat or, or create Moxfield, it's a question of economics. And as I understand, the price of uranium is still so cheap. It crashed 70% off of Fukushima. Maybe it's not even necessary for Americans. But it can, it can come a time when the price goes up, and it's like any commodity. If the price goes up, you say, okay, well, now we're going to treat it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, what, that's what we did with natural gas after, the, yeah. after one of the oil shocks. All of a sudden, a hydraulic fracturing places we hadn't – we knew we had gas, but it cost a lot to get it. All of a sudden, became economical. Yeah, and it's, it's, the same, it's the same argument I make about waste, about uranium. I mean – Say uranium crashed seventy percent after uh, Fukushima. Now, with the coup in Niger and finally countries opening up to um, you know nuclear again, it's rising a little bit, but it's not even close to where it was 10, 15 years ago. The U.S. I believe you had mines closed down in Arizona at one stage. Um, I don't even know if those mines are economical to open up at this stage. Maybe it's just better to buy uranium on the market. So uh, again, they, they now the next scary story they've got is that Russia's got fifty percent of all the enrichment in the world. Well, South Africa closed down our enrichment facility because it wasn't economical to run. It was just cheaper to buy it from France. Um, the only country that, that went and opened up an enrichment facility was Iran. And that's because they were banned from sanctions from enriching themselves. But it's just cheaper to buy from the French. If it's cheaper to buy from them or from Russia, who cares? Right? And if it becomes expensive because of sanctions or because they have control over you, you just enrich yourself. Centrifuges don't cost that much money. Yeah, that's... Um... One of the unique things and sometimes the problematic thing from a um, who gets paid standpoint about nuclear energy is the fuel is not the cost input that really drives the price. It's the construction. The fuel is, I mean, if you tripled the price of the fuel, you're still you're still way ahead of the game because the fuel can burn for years and years and years. Um I, I think, um, and, and, and as far as the linear no threshold, I believe that there's a mine up in northern Canada that gives them 60% just straight out of the ground. They're literally burning dirt in their reactors because it's so it's so hot when they when they pull it out, they don't really have to enrich it. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the linear no threshold um, puts a – puts a, a is there any nation that has nuclear reactors that's crazier on that point than we are i mean i think the united states is pretty out there as far as how well you know, silly about, we are with the, yeah so the u.s is just it, it, the, the issue i got of nuclear linear no threshold is that it's actually the culture just just to be clear to the listener that linear no threshold is a uh, concept that you that that to make it very simple, that there is no safe level of radiation, and as a result, the United States has some kind of out, outsized and outdated ideas about how dangerous nuclear uh, reactors are. Yeah, and, and, and consequently the cost of waste, because um, mm-hmm. it basically means that no waste will ever decay to a safe level. Now, if you accept it's a safe level, you accept a certain quantity I never have to treat, I can just landfill it, or I can put it you know, in a different location, so the cost of waste treatment will go down. And that's actually what I think is the most pernicious of it. In terms of the regulation, regulations, the regulations across the board are the same, but the culture of which it's interpreted on the changes. So I, I, we have had a suspicion for some time that Chinese are ignoring the linear no threshold. And one reason why I suspect it is if you look at how they decommission plants, the Chinese decommission a plant, they say all the high-end waste will be treated and all the low-end waste we cut up with a diamond blade and uh, um, you know, explosives and we just bury it in the ground. 
Now, that's basically saying there's a threshold, if you think of it. Mm -hmm. uh, the UK, <laughs> unfortunately, goes excessive where they put everything in concrete and they super compress it. And there's a high cost now because of UK waste. Um, so UK might be one of those countries that go paranoid about it. But it's, it's, it's a big problem because there's a perverse incentive to the nuclear industry where they think we have to solve the problem. They need to be taught a little bit of economics. You know, you don't need to recycle everything. You can just find a hole in the ground for it. And, um, you know, that's also that's where it came from originally, after all. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and if you take, if you, let's assume there's rain even, okay? If you put it in a desert, there's no possibility of rain for like hundreds of years. But let's assume there's rain. I mean, if you go to hot spots and you go to, you know, uh, uh, natural springs, probably the, 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 the radiation that will seep through that groundwater will be equivalent to that anyways. Mm -hmm. So what is the issue to solve? That's always what I ask people. And then when I say that to environmentalists, they get really angry because I'm disturbing the purity <laughs> of nature. They <laughs> say, so, well, it's never been pure, you know. I, I had right, this well, argument just last weekend with a friend, so that's why I brought it up. <laughs> so Hugo, before we let you go, do you have a, like a blog or a Substack or anything that you'd like to promote where people who are interested in this can read about yeah, it? So I've got a Substack called Hugo's uh, um, Newsletter. I've also got a, a YouTube channel where I did interviews on the you know, threshold with Dr. Wade Ellison and Edward Calabrese, the feminist. I did a three hours episode just debunking the whole story. And um, yeah, so you can, you can find some of my work over there. And I also write a column for it's a South African newspaper, IOL on energy every week. And they actually allow me to dissent. There's some open debate there on this topic, uh, which I appreciate. So yeah, I'll just promote those. All right. Well, thanks again to Hugo Kruger for joining us. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week. Thank you.